Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. We find ourselves in the second of the seven sets of seven judgments. That's a lot of S's. Second set of the seven judgments in the book of Revelation, right? That God is pouring out on humanity for their evil rebellion against him. We saw in the first set of seven, we saw seven seals in chapter six and eight. And now we find ourselves right in the middle of the seven trumpets. We've studied the first four in chapter eight, two weeks ago. And now we find ourselves looking at the fifth and sixth. And we'll see in chapter 11, the seventh. Last week we saw, right, in the first four trumpets, what seemed to be like an echo of the plagues of Exodus. John, and uh, seeing this vision of things that seemed to be much like the plagues of the Old Testament, announcing that God was going to defeat his enemies and defend his people. Right, we saw in those verses 6 through 13 that, that God judges the idolatry of the dwellers of this earth to remind us, his people, of the futility and pointlessness of chasing after dust. Chasing after the things of this world. We also saw, right, that the repetition of the one-third, 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 one-third. We saw that last week. And it reminds us, right, that, that these things, that they're limited in their scope. They are not utter destruction, but that they are limited in their scope. And we're challenged not to be a people who hope or trust in the things of this world. As we saw God almost create like a decreation kind of motif as he was undoing the rivers and the lands and the seas and the stars. And now today we find ourselves here in the fifth and sixth trumpets. And as we dig into these horse-like locusts with human faces and woman-like hair and we see teeth and we see fingers and we see horses with breastplates of iron... We need to understand several things. These are not things we are to go look on Fox News or CNN to find. This is very clearly image language. Metaphor upon metaphor. Image upon image. To help us understand and even feel something about these trumpets that are here. We need to understand that is what Revelation does. As an apocalyptic book, as we studied Revelation chapter 1, we saw that God reveals things... In visions, often with very metaphoric and image-filled language. John records these intense visions, right? Not to confuse us, but to give us a wake-up call. A compelling, shocking picture to awaken us and the watching world from a heaven's perspective of what he sees on this earth. From heaven's perspective of what he sees on this earth. One thing to note, right, as we get into these two trumpets is the intensification of the language from the, from the seals to the trumpets and then what we'll also see into the bulls. We see that they're intensifying. They're, they're growing in intensity. It's almost as like we hear the sevens and he's like, but I need you to hear it again because you're going to miss it if you don't. And he intensifies the language for us, especially here in these and especially in the sixth judgments which seem to be, right, a core culmination of things even not yet seen. 
the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl. Again, John is recording for us what doesn't seem to be exact chronological, linear, progressive things, but instead reiterating the same truths over and over again from a different perspective. Here, focusing on the pointlessness of the dust of this world and the idols that we will see in just a moment. God's judgments continue to pour out throughout history, and our goal is to see our heart set on fire for God and His way by these very real, very fierce images that we see in front of us. And it, it didn't seem fitting to say point one, point two. Instead, I think the most profitable way to read through this section is to ask the text several questions. So if you are a note taker, there are three questions we're going to ask. Three questions we're going to ask the text today. Who are these characters? The star, the locust, and the dragon-like horseman. Who are these guys? What are these people? Are these legitimate things? Are these foreshadowings of types of weapons to come? What's going on here? What are these characters? Secondly, we're going to ask, what are they judging? What are they judging? And that's really where we're going to be to begin to see some really beautiful things and how they judge. And then finally, I think any good time we study a text is what? How does this matter for us today? What does this matter for us today? So let's look at that first question. Who are these characters? Look again with me at verse 1. And I saw the fifth angel blow his trumpet again. The trumpet is the announcing that God is going to defend his people and defeat his enemy. That's the echo we see throughout the Old Testament. God will defend his people and he will defeat his enemy. And so these angels are announcing judgment. God is doing something here. Look there again in verse 1. He says, and John is given this vision, right? He says, and the fifth trumpet was blown. And I, John, saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now again, as good Bible readers, we pick up on the repetition of words. It's what we do, right? My goal as a preacher is not to tell you what to always think, right? But to teach you how to read your Bible in such a way that you, by God's Spirit, can understand the deep things of God. And we see this word star. If you remember, we heard this back in 810. Right? Look there with me in 810. It says, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. Okay, so, then we, so immediately we need to ask ourselves, is this the same star or is this a different star? What's going on here? And we will see and we will continue to see. If you remember from chapter 1, Jesus in the throne room scene of chapter 1, he's got seven stars in his right hand. And we're told they are angels, the angels of the seven churches. We're going to see later on in chapters 12 and 13 and 16 that more angels and more stars are, or, or, excuse me, more stars are talked about. In almost every single one of them, it is referring to an angel. Almost every single one of these stars is referring to an angel. Right? And we'll continue to see that throughout the sections of Scripture we'll study. But we do notice, right, that, that what's interesting is, look there again in verse 1. One thing that is different than we see in verse 10 of chapter 8 with the third trumpet is that we see the pronoun he. Look at it again. And I saw a star from uh, fallen from heaven to earth. And he. Okay, this is crucial. What does this mean? What does this help us understand? This is not a comet. This is not uh, an asteroid. This is a being. The fact that he calls them he and he was given something to possess. A key to the bottomless pit. It helps us understand, right? This clarifies for us that the image of the star here is a being. Most likely an angel. Right, the star of 9-1 is described as what? Fallen from heaven 
to earth. And angels, we have to remember throughout the Bible, they're used as God's emissaries, right? They're his, his messengers bringing messages like to Mary or to Joseph or to Abraham or to Isaac. But they are also those who bring judgment. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were the angels that came and brought the destruction upon these people. Yet the language here is not like that of Michael or Gabriel, is it? It doesn't say he's sent. It says he's what? Fallen. This is a different language. It's not as if he's going to carry out a command. No, he has been almost cast out of heaven. Right? This differs from sent, but it carries the weight and the expectation of someone being cast out of a location. Jesus himself uses this very language in Luke 10 to describe an angel. Listen to Luke 10. It'll be up on the screen, or if you want to write it down, look it up later. Luke 10, verse 17. Jesus has just sent out 72 of his followers to go do some ministry there. And upon their coming back, this is the conversation that they have. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to him, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Again, who did they see? Demons, right? And he just said, I gave you power to tread on. He didn't say demons. What, what did he use? Serpents and scorpions. It's often a, a figurative language for description of demons. That's going to pay attention, right? Because we already saw in chapter 9, scorpions, serpent-type language used. But it's interesting that Jesus says, I saw Satan, right, fall from heaven. It's almost exactly the type of language. This is not a debated. There is many debated things in this section, but this is one that it's probably nine-tenths of all people believe that this is a description of Satan himself. So we see this fallen angel, right, has fallen. It would appear, right, from this text and others that this star that John sees is fallen from heaven is none other than Satan himself. And what's interesting is, that, does that mean that John saw him fall? No, look at the language. It doesn't say he saw him fall. He saw a star as if he had fallen. That would be like Christ saying, as if he had been slain. So John doesn't see Christ being slain in, in the throne room of heaven. He just looks as if one who had been slain. Same type of language we see here. Satan, who had already been cast out of heaven for his ultimate rebellion against God. And this is confirmed. Look at verse 11. This is confirmed in verse 11. They, the locusts, right, they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, the one who is given access by the keys given to him. And his name is Abanum, and his Greek is Apollyon. This confirms what we see and can understand, that this star is none other than Satan himself. So the fifth trumpet shows us that Satan, the king of the locusts, that he's been given keys to this bottomless pit, this abyss. And we need to ask ourselves, what is that? Is there like a hole in the middle of the earth that, that Satan has access to that none of the rest of us do? I mean, we always talk about that language, right? This does not mean Satan is in charge of hell. Do not misconstrue what this is saying. Satan is not in charge of hell, brothers and sisters. God is. But he does have access. He has given these keys, which means he has access now to this abit, abyss or bottomless pit, depending on which translation you're reading. So we need to ask ourselves, what is this bottomless pit? Well, the only thing that really helps us is what we see in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, it'll be there up there on the screen. Again, Jesus has just encountered a man who is filled with demons. He is possessed by demons. And so this is that interaction of Jesus with these demons. It says, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? 
And he said to him, Legion, for we have many demons who have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart and to go where? To the abyss. Same word here. So these demons were asked, Jesus, don't, don't send us to the abyss. Instead, cast us into these pigs. And so this is one of the few other places we see this language of, of abyss or bottomless-like pit. And so it seems that it's some type of a holding chamber for fallen angels, demonic spirits that are on this earth. Right? This helps us to understand what, what even the locusts are of the fifth trumpet. So we see the star as a reference to Satan. He has given access to this abyss, this dwelling place of the um, demonic forces where the locusts come out of. Right? Look at verse 3 again now. Then from the smoke of the bottomless pits or the shaft comes up from there, what? Locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the, any green plant or tree, but only those people who were not sealed, uh, did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, the idea of calling them locusts echoes what? The plagues like we talked about in the previous three. This is the eighth plague. The locust, we see, it's also an echo of Joel. The prophet of Joel who talks about the judgment of God coming upon like locusts. He's building this imagery here. But what's interesting is these locusts do not destroy. And we can see that very clearly. They're told not to eat what? All the green stuff. Guess what normal locusts do? Eat all the green stuff, all the vegetation. So this is clearly not what? Real locusts. This is not real locust. He is not using it. He's using the word locust to attach in our minds to the plagues and the prophecies of Joel that God judges his people. Excuse me, God judges people. All right. What's interesting there, right? These demonic forces called, called these demonic forces called locusts were said in verse four to be given, much like the devil was given the keys, they were given power. Right? They were given the power of the scorpion, it says in their tails. And we're like, what is the scorpion? We'll talk about that at the next question. So just hold on to that. But we do see it's the idea of, according to verse 5, to torment but not kill. Torment but not kill. We're going to ask exactly what that is in a moment. And then we see this really crazy description in verses 7 through 10. All right, let's listen to it again. Verses 7 through 10. In appearance, the locusts were like horses. Prepared for battle on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like a woman's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. They had noses. Uh, no, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they have tails and stings like and they sting like scorpions. If you didn't catch it, I was emphasizing a word that I was reading. What word was it? Like seven times. And John's description of these demonic forces coming up out of this holding chamber that Satan had been given access to, he uses the word like seven times. And this helps express of John's inability in some capacity to describe what he's seeing precisely. We should not be looking for... A man that looks like a woman who has the teeth of a lion running around the earth. That's not the point of revelation here. Instead, the point is this. They are fierce. And they destroy. 
And they want to consume things. That's the point of this type of language. These are not people you want to meet in a dark alley. These are not things you want to meet in a lit alley. These are fierce creatures that are meant to stir up in us. Not necessarily fear, but an overwhelming sense that these things are destructive. Right? It's not that he did not see something. John saw something in the vision. But the idea was unlike anything he had ever encountered. So use the word like to frequently help us understand this. And I do not think, though there are some connections, I don't think John's intention, right, was for us to break down every element of the locus description. What did the hair represent? What did the teeth represent? What did, I don't think that's John's intention. There's sometimes he does do that throughout the book. But here, because he's piling on in so many ways, it's just meant to be like, oh my goodness, these things are crazy. Fierce, destructive creatures. One commentator says this, We are to understand them to be fierce, horrific beings that affect people in an intense, awful, and destructive way. It's John's thrust by using this type of language for us. Again, we'll discuss that a little bit later when we ask another question of how. How do they do this destructive, awful, intense destruction? But in the fifth trumpet, we must notice that these locusts are told not to kill. Only to what? Torment. Again, and they're only torment for what? Five months. Does that mean there's literally going to be a five-month season? Maybe, but it doesn't seem that way. Does anyone know how long a locust lives? Five months. Right, this is one of his ways of attaching right, to these locusts that they are limited in its scope of destruction. They don't have free reign. And that's good news when you read that description, right? That we're told these guys don't have free reign. For me, at least. I, I like to be reminded that these guys just don't have free reign upon the earth. Five months is the lifespan of a locust. And so this is likely the reference here that their, their power and their longevity are limited in its scope. So... We understand the star to be Satan, the locust to be fierce, destructive demons, and that they're given power to torment. So what about these dragon-like horsemen in the sixth seal? Look again with me in verse 13. Again, we're going to come back through the text and ask to get some more questions. Because you're probably like, wait, you missed a bunch. I know. We're going back through. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to this sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, for the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, or as some translations say, 2 million, or 200 million. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And so they rode. They wore breastplates of color fire, of sapphire, and sulfur. Their heads of the horses were like lion's heads. The fire and smoke of the sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails and in their tails like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Wow. I don't want to meet these guys either. 
And again, that's, the, that's the, the image that John's doing is, remember, this was written to seven specific churches in a circular letter that was read to everyone in the ancient culture, right? The, the time of the Roman Empire. And they would read these and they would be like, oh my. They would be familiar with the apocalyptic language of, of Daniel and Zechariah and other sections of Scripture. And these images, it's not like they would try to sketch this out and then go look like, yeah, I think that's it right there. That's, that's not the point. The point is to evoke in us, I don't want to encounter these creatures. But they're real. They're demonic forces. Again, it seems here that these are also demonic forces. Why would you say that, Mr. Josh? Well, let me ask you, kids, I need your help. All right, kids, pay attention. What animal breathed out fire and smoke and sulfur? Thank you, a dragon. A dragon. Bowser. <laughs> this is why he bundles this language together of fire, sulfur, right? He binds these together because then immediately in our minds we're thinking dragon. And we know from the Bible, and we'll also see in chapter 13, right, that there is one called the dragon, a.k.a. Satan. And we also see, right, the language. Look in verse 19. Their tails were like that of a serpent. Hmm. Dragon, serpent, these are just like whom? Satan. They're just like their master. They're just like their king. They're exactly like them. This is why we can understand, right, that these are also probably demonic forces that are going to be unleashed. Right? This is not God's army of angels. This is Satan's army of fallen demonic forces. This is a vast army. Again, the, the language there of 200 million or twice 10,000 times 10,000. 10, Again, numbers in the book of, of, of Revelation are not often telling us exactly. Right? Where they have heavy representation. When you see something like twice 10,000 times 10,000, I want you to think there's a lot of them. No one's going to sit there and count, right? Oh, we only have one million. No, that's a vast army that we see here. It doesn't appear that we need to be taken literally, but that these is a vast army, and they're also fierce, and they have a specific task. What's their task this time? To kill. And we'll ask how we do that in just a moment. But before we do that, I want you to think of something. We know the star is Satan. The locust and the army of the sixth seal are demons. Why is this important for us to think about? Why does God see fit to train us and the church throughout history that there is demonic forces at work? Why? Because we are often blind to this reality. We don't really believe what Paul says, that, that we do not battle flesh and blood. Right? But instead he tells us we battle what? Principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this world. Brothers and sisters, John wants us to remember that there are simultaneously two realities in the world. That which we see and that which we cannot. Now we don't know for sure if these will take physical form in their judgments. We know that that is a capability of angels and demonic forces. But one thing we need to understand is that God does not want you to think 
from heaven's perspective, it's just physical things going on on the earth. There is spiritual realities we must be aware of. One thing I think this does for us in this moment, pay attention here. It means, brothers and sisters, yes, we must feed the poor, care for the orphans and the widow, and seek to protect our country's laws. But those are not the greatest weapons you have. The greatest weapons you have is prayer and truth. That's what this reminds you right now. Your greatest weapon is not your ability to work hard every day. Your greatest weapon is that you have the ability to access God Almighty through His Son and pray that He preserve, He protect, and He move. And yet it's the one thing we as churches do not do. Is pray hard. And we'll see in how they do their work that one of our other greater weapons is the fact that we have the ability to proclaim truth in the midst of a world that is deceived and lying to themselves. Let me ask you a question. Do, do these two trumpets scare you? You're like, I can't read that because they, they do. Well, if, if they do, listen to, these, listen to these words. Look at verse 1 again. I saw a star from heaven fall to heaven. He was what? He was given the keys. Look at verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts to the earth. They were given power. They were told how far to harm and who to harm. Verse 5. They were allowed. They were told five months. Look at verse uh, 14. The angels who are currently bound at the river Euphrates. They had been prepared for the hour, for the day, for the year, for the month. These aren't free rangers on the earth. These demonic forces, they have a master. They have a king. They have a God that says you will go and you will not go and you will do and you will not do. This should not scare us as if we're going to encounter a demon in the middle of the night running through the auditorium, which happens to me sometimes. There's nothing worse than running through a really big room when it's really, really dark for me. But I don't have to fear these things. Because these guys, they're on a chain in a sense. They're under the control of a master. I think we have this. We have the mindset, brothers and sisters, that when Satan fell and the demons fell and the angels fell, that they now are free rangers on the earth doing whatever they see to do. Ooh, I get to go over here. And... No, they are under the control of a sovereign God. We don't have to fear them. The star was given the key. The demons were given the power. They were told what to do, when to do, and how long to do it. This screams of the reality of God's sovereignty and control over Satan and all demonic realms. And if we're not careful, we give Satan way too much credit. But the other thing is sometimes we don't give him enough. That's why we have this fierce imagery. You don't want you to think like demons are something you want to go up and pet. No, they're fierce. You don't want to mess with them. But we don't have to fear them as followers of Christ. Here's a question I want you to ask either your family or whomever you may be having at your table. Does it sit funny with you that God is using Satan to carry out his bidding? Does that sit funny with you? Like God only uses good things, right? Well, here we're being told he uses Satan and demons to carry out his bidding and his judgments. 
Does it just sit funny with you? Discuss that over lunch and look to the Scriptures for answers. One thing we're clear of, God can use anything and anyone to bring about His purposes. That's good. I, I like that. That's comforting to me. Including evil. All right, so I encourage you, think about that. Discuss that at the dinner table maybe later today. But again, does this invoke fear in you every day? Like, are you afraid, like, there's a demon like this under your bed? Or at work? Or in travel locations? Yes, there are demonic forces at work. And yes, we do not play games with them. But we don't need to fear them. How do I know that? Well, look again back at the text. 8.13. Now we're answering the question, what are they judging and how? What are they judging and how? We're moving on to our second question at this point. Look at 8.13 again. We read this uh, two weeks ago. It's the last section before uh, we move into these. He says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To those who, key phrase, dwell on the earth. Again, as I mentioned back then on two weeks ago, this phrase, dwellers of the earth, or those who dwell on earth, does not mean everyone who is on the earth, unlike everyone who is in Jupiter or Mars. This is a specific phrase used seven different times in the book of Revelation, and it is always attached to unbelievers. It is always attached to unbelievers. So this angel is crying, whoa, 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 pay attention, judgments are coming. You unbelievers. Or we could look at what we see in the text for today, chapter 9, verse 4. Again, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Two key things I want you to think about right now. This is really important. I think especially in our context and our community, I'm not saying you, but I need you to understand what this is saying does not mean that demonic forces can do nothing to Christians. does not mean that. But it also does mean that these particular angels who are bringing this judgment, these demonic forces, they will not harm, torment, nor try to kill you. There are tempters. We are told to be aware of the devil who is a lion trying to devour and destroy. But another thing this reminds us, this seal, like we are so afraid of what's going to come in a few chapters, right? The mark of the beast. Well, I, just, I just don't want to get the mark. I don't, don't, don't stitch anything on my hand. Don't put anything on my forehead. Brothers and sisters, if you have the seal, you don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. You got the spirit of God. Does it make sense? We don't need to speculate about getting chips in my elbow or, or this new uh, vaccine that's going to come. That's not biblical. That's a misrepresentation of Revelation. And much more, it says God is incapable of doing what he says he'd do, which is never lose me. So when we see this, this is that comfort to me. Yes, there are demonic realities. There is one who is at war against me. But there is a limit to his ability to do anything to me. Because I am sealed by God, by his spirit. So who is he doing this to then? Well, as we said, he's doing it to the dwellers of the earth or unbelievers, those who are not sealed. And much like he did in the plagues, right? If you remember the plagues in Exodus, there was several of them, right, which were done to everybody, both Israel and Egypt. And then it turned, right, towards the latter ones. And he says it only happened to Egypt. And it seems as if God is going to be, going to be carrying out those same type of things here in the judgments. These only happen to those who are unbelievers. 
Those who are in rebellion to God still. So what does this torment look like from the scorpions? Again, we saw Jesus use, right, the language of a scorpion when referencing demons back in Luke chapter 10. And to be honest with you, this is really hard to figure out completely. There's no perfect way to understand exactly what the torment is going to be like. Really, the best things we have is what's going to be coming up where this word torment is used later on in Revelation. And it is not torment like uh, leprosy. It is more torment like psychological, spiritual darkness and, and madness and blindness. It's, it's more internal torment. It's more an internal psychological spiritual tormenting. And that it will be intense. It will be so intense according to verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, In those days they will seek death, but will not find it. Right? Demons will fight against unbelievers through darkness and trials and unsatisfied hearts and psychological and spiritual torment. And I'm like, I mean, when I was thinking through this, I'm like, man, there's times I go through that too. Does that mean I got a, a demon in me and I'm not really sealed by God? No. It's not what we do. We don't run down those trails. Now, if you are not showing evidence of the Spirit of God in your life, maybe it is true of you. <laughs> and you need to repent. Cling to the one who can seal you and save you for all of his purposes. So we don't know exactly what this torment looked like. But as we'll see in chapters 12 and 13 and 15, 17 language, this torment often has to do with madness. We don't know exactly if it's carried over here. We really don't know. I've never been bit by a scorpion, so I'm not sure what it's like. But I've heard it's intense. And it makes you just want to, like, scream and close your eyes and get out of, you know, like that kind of a... So if he's using that imagery, right, or that connection, then that's what it seems like he's doing here. That there will be seasons where people, after chasing after the things of this world, will grow mad. So much so that they want to kill themselves, but what? It flees from them. What about the sixth trumpet then? What are they judging? This is the one that I found so interesting. It appears, too, right, that these are only judgments against those who rebel against God and unwilling to repent, according to verse 20 and 21. Right? But let's look at really what they're judging. Look with me at verses 17 through 19 really quick. 17 through 19. Pay attention to something that's repeated three times. Again, when something repeats itself three times, they're emphasizing, right? They're trying to help us uh, digest what's going on here. It says, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire, sapphire, and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of where? Their mouths. By these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. What is he emphasizing? This judgment, this, this whatever it is that they're doing, how they're killing, is proceeding out of their mouths. Now, if we're good students, right, we've already heard this once, right? Or we know, right, if we've read Revelation enough, that there's someone else that described as has something coming out of their mouths. Who is that? Christ. says he has a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. That does not mean when we see Jesus, he's going to have this massive sword and he's going to be doing this as he runs around. No, it's what? He comes as the ultimate declaration of truth. And so what would this be then? 
the ultimate declaration of deception. And we see that. We see that in chapter 16 when we see the same type of language repeated. Look at, uh, listen to chapter 16, verse 12 and following. It says, the sixth angel, so now we're on the bulls. The sixth angel poured out his bowl um, on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up and to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle in the great day of the Lord of God Almighty. So we see the same language used again in the sixth bowl. That that, that's their ability to deceive a mass amount of people to come follow them. The image of the judgments proceeding from the mouth and the sixth trumpet is the concept of the deception of demons. Now here's where we get some fun thinking. Because you read other sections of Scripture. If you've read the Old Testament, if you've read uh, even some of the sections of Psalms or some of the New Testament teachings of even like 1 John and other things, we hear the language of the teachings of demons. And you're like, I've never heard a teaching of a demon. You have if it's not in accordance with truth. And this is where it gets interesting. So every false reality proclaimed, not just in a church setting, but in a world setting, you can what? Define your own gender, teaching of a demon. You can live your own life according to you want, do what's best for you, teaching of a demon. Deception, error, falsehood. Our culture is over-sexualized to think that your body's your own and you can do what you want. Teaching of a demon, deception. Even an excessive love of our American identity in this country. America's not going to save us. It's a phenomenal country to live in. And I will do my civic duty and all that's involved there. But if I'm placing my hope for eternity and whether I'm a United States citizen or not, or that's a teaching of a demon. It's a disproportionate size of your heart that's been given over. Right? We don't have time to investigate it thoroughly, and I'd love to take you to some of the different places in Psalm or in Deuteronomy or even in First John, but we just don't have enough time. I would encourage you, go research that. Even the idea of idols. Right? We read it, we heard it in First Corinthians, did we not? Paul's talking about eating right, to the meat of the sacrifice of idols, and he, he correlates it to what? Worshiping demons. And he says, not that there's demons, like, in, but he's saying the falseness of it is the worshiping of a demon. He says it here in verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols. He connects the two together here. The worshiping of demons and idols. Man, there's so much you can just think on for there for a second. Maybe that'd be another great discussion for you to have during this week or with someone after our services. Now, we've got to be careful not to over-speculate. But one thing we can say for certain, if it is distortion of God's, God's purposes, God's ways, or God's characters, it is brought forth by demonic influence. Plain and simple. Which is why we're people of the Word. Because it is our only understanding of truth. 
and clarity so that I'm not tossed to and fro by any wind and wave of doctrine that's in the world. Yet the point still remains. God is allowing this to happen. And this, I would argue, is not yet fully happening. I think we're going to see a greater degree and increasingness of deception in our world. I'll argue that when we get to the bowls. And this deception leads people to death. So if we believe all of this to be what we see here, the characters are the stars, right? The, the star that has fallen, which we saw, see as Satan, the locust, and the dragon-like horsemen who are demonic forces, who are both tormenting and deceiving and being allowed to by God himself. What does this mean for us today? I think several things. First and foremost, for those of you in this room who are still in the process of worshiping idols, you are being deceived. This is interesting. Pay attention here. God gave these people over to what they worshipped, and the demons don't care about you one lick. They only want to destroy you. And yet we keep going back to them. So the call for us is, is one, we need to repent of any idols so that we will not be hardened like these in this day. And the other one, just think about this for a second. John, and the way he records this vision and what he sees, he is emphasizing, as God's people, I am one who rejoices in the power of my God. Like, I don't play games with demons or Satan and demonic forces, but I'm not scared of them. And I don't mean that like I'm going to go willy-nilly go into a bad situation. I'm sealed by God's Spirit. I'm empowered by the Spirit of God Himself. They have to do the bidding of God's people. Careful there. There's a whole lot of nuance that I can't go into in that moment. But they don't intimidate me. Because if something happens to me, it first passed through the hands of God Almighty, and He saw that it's fit and good for me to shape me more into the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can read this text and rejoice that our God is in control. I want to read verse 20 and 21 again. Imagine the scenes here, right? People being tormented, wanting to die. But death flees them. And then the image of a third of the earth destroyed by this demonic influence and deception. Look at verse 20. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. I want to cry for these people. I grieve for them. I don't go, yeah, you get what's coming to you. If that's you, you have a wicked heart and you need to repent. Because this text is meant to drive you into what we see in chapters 10 and 11. The witness and the scroll that we eat and then we go proclaim. This should grieve us that there are going to be some who are so hardened by idolatry and sin and demonic forces that they will not see. And it should grieve us. It should drive us to go wherever God calls us to go. This text finally... We rejoice in the power of God. We grieve over the lost who are being deceived and will one day be hardened. 
We repent of our idols and our false beliefs. But brothers and sisters, what this text drives you to is what we'll see next week. We need to be a praying church who is all about proclaiming truth. Every moment, every breath, everything we have, we give to this work. And in your proclamation of truth, there needs to be the language of repentance. That's why I started there. To proclaim the gospel and not call people to repent is deception in itself. It's got to be... Now, you don't have to use per se, the word repent, right? But this idea of right, acknowledging my sin and saying, God, it's against you and you only have my sin. And a turning from that and a transformation of life that follows in line with the work of the Spirit. This needs to be a part of our vocabulary. There's too many people in too many churches that are watering down truth and they're only deceiving. They're inoculating people from the reality of what been, they've been called to by Scripture. And we're being called to wake up. These type of things are real. And we have the answer that they're looking for. The king that we serve we need to actually go and do that. Serve. So as we finish today, rejoice that our God is in control. Grieve over the loss who are being deceived by the teachings of demons. Repent of the idols and false beliefs that we have. And become those who are passionately praying for God to move in only the ways He can as we proclaim Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.